And, you know, he basically says, oh, shut up with your hippy-dippy nonsense and this, right. that, you know. Yes. Yes. I don't want to listen to your facts, you know, and this whole... Don't confuse I, me I, with the facts. <laughs> right. They need not apply. Welcome to episode 97 of the Movie Bite Podcast, a show all about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, July the 15th, 2014. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me tonight is the intelligent ape. I think maybe it's Caesar himself. It's Clark Douglas. Me happy join you, TJ. Well, this is uh, this is interesting. Uh, I've never <laughs> talked to an ape before. No, no, I, I can't imagine doing an hour, an hour and a half of that. So <laughs> yeah, that's a we'll have crazy. to leave leave it at that. Well, you were uh, you, you were putting little things in in our in our uh, conversation on Trello, where we, where we schedule our podcasts and and, <laughs> and stuff about scratching armpits and mm-hmm. ape approve, ape be there, scratches armpits. Uh, I know, so. I got I got in the spirit of the thing. Yeah, this movie. well, I mean, you, you have to. I mean, it's you got to get into the spirit of it. You have to enjoy movies. You, you know, life is too short to not enjoy the movies you watch. This is true. Yes. Uh, well, um, we were supposed to be joined again, as we announced last week, uh, that, that Joe was returning to the podcast. We were supposed to be joined again by Joe uh, this week, as we will be most weeks. And uh, as it turns out, he calls me apologetically uh, from the side of the road. His car had broken down, and he was unable to be here tonight. Uh, so we, I'm, I'm wishing him luck on uh, car troubles. I know all about those. Yes, indeed. Uh, and I, I may or may not have sabotaged his engine out of jealousy. Uh, <laughs> no fair telling. But. Well, you know, I mean, you've you got to do what you've got to do. and I, I know. I you just can't just come in and steal the spotlight like that. Something has to be done. Yes, yeah, and I, I don't begrudge you that at all. <laughs> uh, you, you probably put some of that... Uh, some of that secret sauce in the in the crankcase or something that that just would cause it to to have issues. So uh, again, no fair tell. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't ask you to reveal your secrets. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Um, well, so let's dive into some film news here, and uh, I want to talk. I'm, I'm I'm linking to this, and I, I posted a video uh, earlier today on MovieByte.com uh, where Lucas Shaw from The Wrap explains why Edge of Tomorrow is not a flop, and and really it was just a vehicle for me to mention, hey, Edge of Tomorrow is doing better than than we expected it to. Certainly better than when we reviewed it. Uh, and I'm trying to remember who was uh, who was on that podcast. It was me and Chad. Uh, mm-hmm. We're talking about Edge of Tomorrow, and. Um, we liked it fairly well, but uh, it felt like audiences were not very receptive of it or, or just simply weren't going to see it, really. Those who'd seen it liked it, uh, but it, the film was was just doing very poorly. And so this is more kind of an update to that, that, um, you know, it, it's still not a great big hit here in the U.S., but overseas it has had a, quite a different uh, life, and it's it's t- taken in $256 million so far overseas. And that brings the worldwide total up to $350.4 million. It, it's not, um, I mean, that's not the money i think they were hoping to see from it but it's it's certainly uh more than than we expected it to get to i think well and i understand that even here in the states at the very least word of mouth has been good like these surveys they've been taking of audiences who have seen the movie have been positive it's just i think it was a a weak marketing campaign that really kind of hurt this movie which is interesting because i really enjoyed the marketing campaign i thought all the trailers are pretty fantastic for the film Mm. but but maybe it's just they didn't have the exposure they needed Maybe so, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I certainly didn't get the impression, at least from watching the trailers, that the movie was as smart and clever as it was. Maybe so. Um, but but that's just me. I mean, I'd, other people may have felt differently. But yeah, I, I am glad that it's it's faring a little bit better, because it's a smart movie, and it, it doesn't deserve to just kind of wither and die. 
No, not at all. It, it's it's quite a good film in, in my estimation, and mm-hmm. uh, certainly one of the better Tom Cruise films we've had in quite a while. And uh, yeah, I, I was I was really disappointed. And like you said, it's like people just weren't going to see it. It it, it which which does point to a bad uh, campaign, you know, awareness campaign. But they they simply just weren't going to see it. And and people who have seen like it doesn't have a bad rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Last time I looked, the the audience liked it, and certainly the critics like it. And so yeah, it was it was a little disappointing at the time. So I'm glad to hear that it's uh, it's it's kind of doing a little better. It's it's you know as much as I complain about the uh, the state of uh, of what, what shall we say sequelitis in in Hollywood, this is one that I think could have a a good sequel. I mean you know we, I'd like to know more about where those aliens came from and and whether there's going to be repercussions for you know just you know wiping them all out. So, you know spoiler alert. Um, you know it just seems like you could go somewhere with that. I, I would think. All I want is for them to call it edgier of tomorrow. <laughs> uh, that's good. I like that. This is why I have you on the show, Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just to follow up on what I mentioned a minute ago, I was pulling up uh, the Rotten Tomatoes, and uh, the uh, tomato meter for the critics is at 90%, and the audience is at 92%. So those who yeah. have seen it and rated it really like it. Uh, and in one of the few films where the, the critics really just gather around it and say, wow, this is a good one, you know. And, you know, uh, we'll, of course, be talking about this movie uh, more later, but Dawn of the Planet of the Apes has a similar situation, one of those uncommon uh, circumstances where audiences and critics are both pretty positive across the board. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and it, it's it's very uncommon. I, I Well, I don't know if it's very uncommon, but it, it seems less than common for that to happen quite yeah. – I mean, 90 and 92, that, that's that's quite the the uh, the conglomerate, you know, the, the kind of the merging of, of opinions there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, very excited about that. And, and, you know, glad to see that a good film is, is doing, you know, well, I, I mean, I wish it would do better compared to like Transformers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, but you know, I just wanted to mention that because I'm excited about that. Well, maybe if they had had some more product placement for the Beats pill in there, it would have fared a little better. <laughs> but. I, don't, I, can't, I can't even <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. I, I, I can't I can't talk about that again. Not again. No, no. It, it brings back bad memories. Mm hmm. All right. Well, um, Exodus of Gods and Kings trailer. You say that you didn't cause all this. You say this is not your fault. So let's just see who's more effective at killing. You. When I look at you, I still see the two boys who grew up together. Meet me down by the gallow tree. Close as brothers. Clark, you being kind of the movie movie fanatic that you are, like me, I'm sure you've already watched this trailer. Is that, I is have. that true? Yes, I have. Um, um, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, what did you think? I want to hear what you thought. Okay. Uh, I, I think it looks promising. Um, I, I'm somebody who likes a lot of Ridley Scott's recent work. Uh, I, I know a lot of folks kind of feel that he's dropped off in recent years. I'm not one of them. Um, and I think he's somebody who fares pretty well when he's in sort of epic historical mode. And uh, yeah, this this movie looks like it's kind of right in his strike zone. Uh, the casting is intriguing. It certainly looks gorgeous. I don't know, you know, how, how well the storytelling will be handled, but I'm cautiously optimistic about this one. 
Yeah, and Ridley Scott is one for me. Well, I have not seen, I would not say even, I've even seen the majority of his movies, but those that I have seen, they're hit and miss. Um, he's made some of my favorite movies, and he's made some pretty terrible movies. Um, you know, obviously he made Gladiator, which is probably the most immediate comparison that you can make to this type of film, I, I would right. say. Uh, because because of the historicity of it and the um you know kind of the probably what we're gonna see he's really good at telling the epic story from a historical perspective like you said and and I frankly I think Gladiator may be in my top ten I I I, I need one day figure out what my top ten actually is but because I, I put a lot of movies in there it seems like but yeah it, it is a very good film and and on that level I'm really excited to have Ridley Scott directing this film. Uh, and I should mention, I, I don't think we explicitly mentioned, obviously the film's title is Exodus of Gods and Kings. Uh, so it, it's kind of basically uh, the Ten Commandments, only not, you know, not Cecil B. DeMille's version. Um, it, that's what I got anyway, is that all, at least on a very basic level, it's going to be that same, you know, story. You know, I don't know if it starts and ends at the same places, but. And, it, you know, at least based on the little snippets the trailer has provided story-wise, it looks like it's hewing maybe a little bit closer to the sort of thing they did in The Prince of Egypt than in the Ten Commandments. Right, I've heard Where that. the brothers are kind of allies for a good long while, uh, you know, or, or stepbrothers, I guess. So, so how much trouble do I get in if I say that I've never seen The Prince of Egypt? Uh, not much. Okay. I mean, it's it's fine. Okay. It's, it's a decent little animated movie, but nothing amazing. Has a nice soundtrack. Yeah, that's and that's that's what what I know mostly. The Prince of Egypt is I hear the soundtrack from from coworkers and different things. I have a spe- specifically one coworker who who apparently listens to it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the cast of that. You've got Val Kilmer, Ray Fiennes, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Jeff Goldblum, Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart. So yeah, I, I guess I need to see The Prince of Egypt. It's it, it's a good looking animated film. I mean, it's a decent take on the story. It takes some liberties uh, as you might expect, but. Yeah, I liked it. It's it's a nice enough movie. So getting but I back, hope Exodus turns out well. Yeah, yeah. So getting back to Exodus and Ridley Scott, what did you think of The Counselor? Okay, uh, <laughs> I thought The Counselor was fantastic. Um, uh, it was an incredibly bleak, almost kind of nihilistic sort of movie, but I, I thought it um, was superbly acted and directed, and portions of it resonated really strongly with me. Uh, almost everybody else I know hated that movie, so I'm I'm very much sort of alone on that one. But I I liked it a lot. Yeah, and that's why I never got around to seeing it because it it, it looked somewhat troublesome. Uh, I think maybe morally for me, you know, mm-hmm. everybody draws different lines, and some people don't care. And I, you know, I can watch a movie that's troublesome morally, but not, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to like saturate myself in it. Uh, so I I didn't go to see it for that reason, and then I started hearing that it was just really you know not good. Yeah, it's it's at the very least it, it has a pretty bleak sort of worldview. Uh, it, it's very much kind of Murphy's Law, the movie, um, and yeah, like I say, a lot of people didn't care for it, but uh, I, I don't know. It just really kind of clicked with me, and I liked Prometheus too, which is another Ridley Scott film that a lot of people really kind of dismissed. Right, and that one I still want to see. I haven't seen that yet. Um, and part of the reason I I haven't seen it, and I I, I know it, I'm a completionist, Clark. Mm-hmm. And I have not seen the entirety of the Aliens franchise or the Alien franchise, um, mm-hmm. and I, I, I really was just, especially I think how I think I saw the third one and it was just such a slog. Um, I, I believe if I have this correct, or yeah, because I think I like the second one better. The first one was a little bit of a slog for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, are we not going to get along on this? Well, no, no. That, that, well, okay. I, um, <laughs> Alien, uh, the original Alien, is like right. one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time. Um, but that's okay. 
different strokes and everything. Uh, the second one, Aliens, is a lot of fun, too. But I, I would say, really, those two movies and Prometheus are the only three that I personally would consider, like, essential viewing. Okay. Uh, well, I probably should just go ahead and watch Prometheus then. And I, and I know there was, like, crossover with a- the Alien franchise and the Predator franchise. Is that right? Uh, yes, but th- those are really kind of awful. Uh, most most I, people think that they're best left ignored. Yeah, I assumed they were awful, and I really wasn't planning on watching those. So I feel like I'm missing an alien. There's an, is there an Alien 4? There, there is. It's called Alien Resurrection. That one's actually kind of fun. Uh, Joss Whedon wrote the screenplay for oh, that Oh, well, one. I have to see this. Yeah. So now I, I will say that they wound up like altering a lot of his screenplay, and he was unhappy with the finished result mm. uh, because of that. But it's still... You can still tell it has his fingerprints all over it. I mean, it feels very much like a, a Joss Whedon sort of alien movie. Yeah, I need to see it then. Um, so, so that's kind of my why I never watched the watched Prometheus is because I felt you know as a completionist, it's hard for me to watch. Like, like even though I have no love for the Fast and Furious franchise, although now I'm mm-hmm. thinking about going back and fixing fixing that problem since since I really like what they've done with Fast and Furious Seven, just in terms of marketing and and the way they've communicated with people and the fans and you know mm-hmm. the obvious love that everybody had for Paul Walker, I, I feel like I want to go back and 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 give that franchise another chance. In 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 any event, I almost didn't go see Fast. Fast and Furious Six, uh, and in review it, all just because I'm a completionist. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, there's a lot to catch up on if I'm going to do that before Fast and Furious Seven comes out. Yeah, there there are certainly a whole bunch of those at this point. So that that aside, um, going back to Ridley Scott again, um, and this is where we may have some more issues. So Alien, I didn't really <laughs> care for. That was directed by Ridley Scott. Blade okay. Runner, I've just recently finally watched Blade Runner, and I've watched the version that everybody says you're supposed to watch, and I don't even remember which one it is now. Is it the director's cut or this whatever it is? The more recent, I, I guess the the ultimate cut or whatever. It yeah, is something called. like that. Yeah, the, the most recent one. I got confirmation from Blade Runner fans that I was watching the approved version. Um, and, uh, I, I, I really didn't love it. I didn't love it. And I, you know, you may, you I, I, I hear the judgment coming uh, through the silence. I, I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> A second favorite sci-fi perhaps? Uh, well, uh, Alien, I prefer, uh, of the two, but I do like Blade Runner a lot. And if you were asking me to pick Ridley Scott's two best movies, <laughs> Those would be the two for me. <laughs> wow, for yeah, me, it's obviously I, I love both of them. it's very obviously Gladiator for me. Uh, and Gladiator is is a terrific film. It really is. Um, I, I enjoy that movie a lot. But yeah, th- those two, those first two are just fantastic. Yeah. If you had to pick any other Ridley Scott movies, or is there any others you'd like to mention? Um, there are a few. There, there's one that I don't feel gets mentioned enough, so I will toss it out here, and that's Matchstick Men from okay. 2004, uh, starring Nicolas Cage and Sam Rockwell. Really wonderful little uh, kind of comedy drama. How do you put one of the better actors and one of the worst actors in the same movie like that? <laughs> I, I assume that Sam Rockwell you're putting in the former category and Nicolas Cage in the latter. Um, Possibly. <laughs> Yes, yes, I am. But, I was just but, trying to get you going. <laughs> but uh, Nicolas Cage is somebody who, it's a weird mix of good, bad, and ugly over the course of his career. Mostly, but when he's mostly the, bad and ugly, but go on. <laughs> I do think, though, when he's in the right part, he can be a really good actor. And this is a part that just seems tailor-made for him. He's he's fantastic. I'd put it in one of his top two or three performances. But but the um, thing is, Clark, I, I can never understand what he's what he's saying. He just he, 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 he can't understand a word that he's saying. Yeah, he does do that a bit, but but there are a few uh, Nicolas Cage performances that I think are, are worth defending. He's 
a capable actor in the right role. Okay, so Matchstick Men would be one of those performances you would defend, I assume. Yes, yes. Okay. Matchstick Men, and it, it's it's a great script, too. Just a fantastic story and uh, very much a different sort of thing for Ridley Scott, but I like it a lot. Well, we've been talking a lot about Ridley Scott, and that is because, regardless of how I feel about his movies, I love Gladiator, don't like a couple of his others that I've seen, um, and have yet to see Robin Hood. I really want to see that. Please tell me it's okay. Please tell me it's good. It's fine. Um, It it feels very much like he's trying to sort of um, do Gladiator again, but with the Robin Hood story, which makes portions of it feel a little awkward. Um, And he also has sort of an intriguing kind of um, political edge to that movie where he basically makes Robin Hood kind of a um, a libertarian of sorts. Oh, and I so that, like that's, it then. That's interesting <laughs> at the very least, some of the stuff he does. Yeah, and I feel like, uh, I've got sidetracked again, but I feel like most people get Robin Hood wrong, and so that sounds very interesting to me. I, I like the I, the sound of that, and, and the libertarian part obviously appeals to me, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so, so yeah, Ridley Scott's hit or miss, but, um, the most, what I feel like is going to be the, the closest comparison to this movie, uh, that he's made gladiator was really good. And so I'm hoping that this movie will be good. Now for me, uh, as, as a believer, as a Christian, it has a little bit of another flavor too. And I've already been burned on this once this year. Um, with, with Noah, which I really despised on many levels. Uh, one would be the biblical level, and then the other would just be – you take away the entire biblical, biblical nature of the story, and it just wasn't a good film um, in my opinion. Uh, and so you know, I've kind of been burned on that front, and now we have Exodus of Gods and Kings, and you know, I just don't know – like you know, Ridley Scott has been quoted to say um, – in fact, I'll just quote him here, uh, where he says, uh, in, in this one, the characters are conventionally historic. There have always been discussions about Moses. Was he, in fact, one of the princes of Egypt? I have accepted the conventional story of the origin of Moses. As I do more and more movies, I get more and more centralized on the characterization. This is a challenge because you are dealing with a very, very delicate subject. It's like politics. You don't necessarily want to walk, talk about it because it's very personal. So that that's a quote directly from Ridley Scott, and that's somewhat encouraging to me that he's sticking with at least what he feels is the conventionally understood story of Moses. So. Well, and you know, it's it's a a powerful dramatic story on its Absolutely. own terms. Yes. You know, so there's there's plenty there to work with. Uh, arguably, even more so than the original story of Noah, it just kind of is a natural movie. I think the whole Moses Exodus tale. Yeah, I think it does make a better movie for sure. I mean, and look at you know, I, I hmm, I'm I'm no big fan of Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, but it certainly has its merits. And if they can do at least that good, I think I'll be satisfied with the film. The weird thing to me is that Christian Bale does not seem like Moses to me. I do not look at Christian Bale and go, "Oh, perfect Moses." I, it just doesn't go do it for me. Yeah, uh, it, it's an odd choice. Um, I see him, uh, looking back at the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments, I see him in the part that Charlton Heston played in the first half of that movie. Um, Maybe, perhaps. Y- you know, I see that side of Moses. I don't necessarily see the old man coming down from the mountain um, sort of Moses there. But uh, we'll see. I don't, uh, you know, and I don't really know how much of the story this is planning to cover anyway. Um, yeah, but, well, we're with Charlton Heston. I mean, he easily played both parts quite well. You he know, did the 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 pre God encounter Moses and the post God encounter Moses. You know he did, and you know you have to say too. Um, Joel Edgerton might have lucked out a little bit here because in the first one, at least in the Cecil B. DeMille version, 
Uh, Pharaoh was really the meatiest kind of dramatic part there. Um, Yul Brenner was just fantastic in that Absolutely. role. Absolutely. Yes, probably the best part of the, of, of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so, so definitely a, a great opportunity there, I would say, for any actor. Yeah, and, and, and I will say, he look, now he seems the part. When I saw him, immediately when I saw him, I thought, that's a great choice for Pharaoh. You know, mm-hmm. so when I saw him in the trailer and stuff. So anyway, uh, the best way to, to decide for yourself, audience, if you're interested in this film, is to go check out the trailer, which is linked up in the show notes at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 96. And I will mention as well that I actually really, really liked the Noah movie, but I will forgive you for that as well, because yeah, I'm just full well, of love and forgiveness today. Yes, I, you, you, there's a lot of forgiveness going around, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. you, you and you and Fizz would have uh, would have gotten along well on that. <laughs> um, we, we had a whole big discussion about it on the Movie Byte podcast. Several I recall. Back. Yes, I so. do. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, let's let's go ahead and move on to our next bit of news, which, you know, speaking of all the, you know, live action stuff that's being, you know, taken from the uh, cartoons that we maybe grew up on, at least I grew up on, you know, and, and even before my time, but I grew up on them anyway, which is, mm-hmm. and this is Disney developing a live action Dumbo. I, 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 why? Why yeah. is what my first question. It's a, it's a really peculiar choice uh, for a live-action film. And the weird thing is, I can almost see a live-action version of this working, um, but not one that would make a lot of money. Uh, I, I think you could make a really kind of powerful live-action number, but it would almost like mostly have to be a silent film, I think, um, that would you know focus primarily on the elephants and sort of their relationships and actions and everything. And uh, sort of show rather than tell what was happening. I I think you could do something interesting there, but I'm sure Disney's not going to do that because that's not a viable sort of box office option. This feels very much like some sort of, oh, look at all this. You know, we've we've had this successful Maleficent thing and, you know, several other live action things going on. Let's let's see if we can, you know, pile a little bit more cash in our corner here. It's what it feels like to me. So, do you know, have they said anything? Is Dumbo going to talk in this? Is he going to be like Babe or something like that? I and, haven't heard a word about that. Well, because if not, surely they're going to have to make, um, I don't know, maybe the circus ringmaster the main character or something. like. I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. Um, but I'm curious to see what they have in mind exactly. I really don't know. I, 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 just, I just don't understand... Um, why this film was needed what what was the motivation for making it like i i even like i'm and we'll talk about this in a minute i i i think i think i can see the motivation behind the jungle book mm-hmm. i i don't see why this is interesting now one of my uh one of the probably the, one of the best films i've watched in recent memory that's 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 stating it too strongly mm-hmm. i i was convinced to watch a silent film uh recently uh by a friend of mine and recently, it was probably a year ago. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of that film. It was a French film. Uh, the artist. The uh, it may have been the artist. Uh, I don't know. That doesn't sound right, actually. Did, did was it made like yeah, two yeah, or no, three was, years ago? It was the artist. Yeah, the, the artist. The yeah, that was a, a delightful film. Yeah, and it was very delightful. So it's not that I can't enjoy a silent film or silent characters or whatever. I just don't know that uh, you know Dumbo's in an obviously completely different tradition than than the artist, but. Um, you know, I suppose maybe it could work. I just don't, I just, I guess my problem is I never really liked Dumbo to begin with. So, well, and, and Dumbo, I mean, it's, it's best scenes are scenes that would be pretty much impossible to recreate in live action. Uh, you know, I, I really don't see what exactly they're hoping to get out of this, but 
who knows? Just maybe somebody has a good idea out there. Yeah, I, I really don't get it. So I just wanted to, to mention that, but don't get it at all. So one more piece of news before we move on to our primary review, and that is that John Favreau has found his Mowgli for Disney's The Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is one that I've, I've been a little curious about. I, I don't expect I'm going to like it, but, uh, you know, it's The Jungle Book, and it's one of the beloved movies of, of uh, you know, of ever probably from Disney. I don't know. It's, it's one of the bigger, you know, one, one of the ones you remember and think of as a kid. At least I do. Yeah, it's definitely one of my top two or three Disney favorites as a kid. And so John Favreau, as we know, has been putting together the uh, the cast for the live action uh, version of the Jungle Book, which we've had live action Jungle Books before. I don't know that any of them have been done that well. Um, but, you know, and in fact, I haven't seen the most recent Disney tries at that. So I, I don't know if I can speak authoritatively on that. But um, this one is shaping up to be a little bit interesting with Idris Elba and Ben Kingsley, Lupita Nyong'o, and Scarlett Johansson. Um, and now we've cast uh, someone who appears to be unknown, Neil Sethi. Uh, he's a 10-year-old New Yorker, and he's been cast as Mowgli in the film. He, he definitely looks uh, like he's he has some Indian heritage there from India. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is this one, uh, I assume there are going to be voiceover performances in this one? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, all those that I just mentioned, uh, Idris Elba, Ben Kingsley, Lupita Nyong'o, and Scarlett Johansson all have voice uh, parts only. Yeah. Their their characters will be CGI. Now, I'm looking something up here to make sure I'm right, because I, I remember thinking it was a strange choice. The Jungle Book 2015. Here we go. Scarlett Johansson is playing Ka. Um, Idris Elba mm. is Shere Khan, Lupita Nyong'o is Rock, Rock, Rockcha, whoever that is, and Ben Kingsley is Bagheera. Ben Kingsley, I get. Scarlett Johansson is Ka is a little strange, but forever for me, uh, Ka will be, um, uh, what is his name? Was uh, it Sterling Holloway? Yes, yeah, Sterling Holloway, yes. thank you. He will forever be Sterling Holloway, as far as I'm concerned, but, but so will Winnie the Pooh, so, I mean, you know. <laughs> and, you know, The Jungle Book, I, I would say, has one of Disney's all-time great voiceover performances in uh, Phil Harris's take on Baloo the Bear. Um, For sure. Which is, yeah, it's just so vibrant and fun, and uh, allegedly, like, one of the only performances where uh, Walt Disney actually encouraged Phil Harris to improvise his lines and make stuff up, where he was very, very rigid with almost everyone else all the time. Just yeah. because he thought his riffs were kind of so much fun. Come on, Baggy, get with the beat. There you go. It, it, it's such a fun character. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love Baloo, and uh, you know, I, I I love the Jungle Book. I think uh, it's just that I saw it so many times as a kid. It was like, ah, uh, I don't ever want to see it ever again. My kids love the Jungle Book. Um, there's certainly nothing wrong with the Jungle Book. So uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting and. Uh, I'm I'm kind of burned out on all this reboot all the things stuff, but I'm I'm also kind of interested in this film. Yeah. Um. So that's uh. I think that's it on the news front. Let's talk. Okay. Let's talk about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yours. I want to protect mine. 
It's our only chance for peace. Are you aware? No! They are going to turn on you. They're animals! Caesar, it's your home. Who was that? A good man like you. Caesar love humans more than apes. If you threaten his family, he will retaliate. Don't shoot! Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was released on July the 11th, 2014. It had a budget of $170 million. It opened to $72.6 million domestically, and the worldwide gross is $113.5 million. Rotten Tomatoes says that with intelligence and emotional resonance to match its stunning special effects, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes expands on its predecessor with an exciting and ambitious burst of sci-fi achievement. Uh, directed by Matt Reeves, writers Mark Bomback, Rick Jaffa, and Amanda Silver. It stars Andy Serkis as Caesar, Jason Clark as Malcolm, Gary Oldman as Dreyfus, Carrie Russell as Ellie, Toby Kebble as Koba, and Cody Schmidt McPhee as Alexander, Kirk Av- Av- Acevedo, Acevedo. Acevedo as Carver. I know him from Fringe. Yes. Uh, pretty fantastic turn on Fringe. Composer Michael Giacchino, what can you tell us about Michael Giacchino? You're, you're our music guy here. Uh, Michael Giacchino is a fantastic composer and one whose star has risen quite a bit uh, in recent years. Uh, started out as a TV composer of note, working on shows like Lost and Alias, and right. also working on uh, video games. He scored a lot of the Medal of Honor games. Um, but he has quickly become one of the bigger film composers out there, largely due to his association with J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. And he's also worked on all three films directed by uh, the director of this movie, Matt Reeves. Uh, he worked on Cloverfield. He wrote a terrific just sort of end credits piece for that movie. That was the only sort of proper underscore there, but a great piece. And then he wrote the score for Let Me In, uh, a, a very fine vampire movie from, I guess, three or four years ago. Yeah, and he's done uh, several Pixar films, if memory serves. He has. Uh, he did Up. He did Ratatouille. Uh, boy, what a great score that was. His sort of big break with Pixar was The Incredibles, which mm-hmm. yeah. uh, he, he actually served as a replacement for the great John Barry on that movie, uh, who was originally hired to score that. And then uh, Michael Giacchino came in and replaced him midway through the production process. Yeah, he's done some Mission Impossible movies. Uh, most notably, to you know, late, lately he's done Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. Now, yes. as much as I like Michael Giacchino's score in many other places, I'm not a big fan of his Star Trek scores, although there are several cues that I love in Star Trek Into Darkness. I, I feel like any composer would have had trouble making me happy with Star Trek because I've just been such a fan over the years, and I feel like some of the music has been done so well. Uh, you know, obviously Jerry Goldsmith's music was fantastic. James Horner's music was, you know, outstanding in The Wrath of Khan, and and you know he's got a lot. Of, anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's Michael Giacchino. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I feel like you were going to say something. Though. Let me have you. No, say well, I, I agree with you. I think he did a good job on those movies. Uh, but there is such a high standard for that series, as you mentioned. The Goldsmith scores are fantastic. The Horner scores, uh, even Cliff Eidelman's score for yeah. the sixth movie. Yeah, I, it's pretty good. Oh, really? oh I love that one. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty high standard in general. The only one. I really am not a fan of is the Dennis McCarthy score for Generations. I think it's kind of dull. Yeah, that is that's true. And my my second least favorite would be Leonard Rosenman's, which I felt like you know he, yeah, that was kind of a mess. As much as I like Star Trek Four, yes. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds a little silly yeah. at times. Um, which you know, yeah, movie, Michael Giacchino, yeah, sharp guy. 
Yeah, and uh, I've I've enjoyed most of the other scores. So I just feel like my uh, my sensibilities are a little bit uh, befuddled by the Star Trek series in general. It's just just I, I just won't go there with him. Yeah, and you know uh, there there were some people since Giacchino scored all of J.J. Abrams uh, movies and most of his TV shows. Uh, including some early stuff in Fringe, in addition to the other shows I mentioned. Yes, uh, he. Many were speculating that he would take over as the new composer on Star Wars, but right. he came out and said, "No, I mean that's John Williams' job. I'm hoping John Williams will do it." And uh, thankfully, John Williams got to keep that job. Yes, and will be scoring the next Star Wars movie. Yeah, but I, you know, there's, there's, we only have a few more years with John Williams, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely on board with that. At the same time, I'm, I'm sure that somebody will get a shot at Star Wars. Maybe Michael Giacchino somewhere. Yeah, you know, and at, at you know, it, Michael Giacchino could get a shot at one of these Star Wars spinoff movies for a start. Uh, yeah, you know, because I'm sure John Williams is going to do everything. He'll probably just stick with the main series. Um. But yeah, I, I am glad that John Williams is sticking around as long as he can because I mean that's that's just one of his defining achievements. Yes, yeah, and and I, I definitely uh, I definitely want to give that to John Williams. So I'm looking forward to that very much. That's probably one of my uh, one of my most looked forward to aspects of Star Wars is hearing John Williams' wonderful score. I really hope we get to hear the Imperial March somewhere in there. Although with the Empire and shambles, you would assume I, I don't know how that's going to work. But uh, maybe you can get a version of it performed by like a sad tuba. Or something, <laughs> since they've faded away. Yes. Uh, well. So okay. So let's let's talk about uh, the Planet of the Apes. The composer was Michael Giacchino, which led on that wonderful little rabbit trail that we just went down. <laughs> uh, the storyline is that a growing nation of genetically evolved apes, led by Caesar, is threatened by a band of human survivors of the devastating virus unleashed a decade earlier. They reach a fragile peace, but it proves short-lived as both sides are brought to the brink of a war that will determine who will emerge as Earth's dominant species. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to say that I've had a little bit of trouble composing my thoughts on this film. Uh, as chance would have it, Joe has uh, mentioned he wants to write the uh, review for Movie Bite, uh, which which uh, that's I had planned to write it last night, and I just couldn't quite collect my thoughts on this film. And I'm sitting here. I was sitting here tonight before the podcast, trying to come up with with things I wanted to talk about about this film. And and while I really like the film. It seems a little bit difficult to talk about. I don't know if you if that's just me or if you feel the same way. It, it's just I don't know. It's a little hard to come up with stuff. Um, I, I definitely have quite a few thoughts on it. So um, okay, good. If 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 that falls short, I will just talk forever and bore everybody. Oh well, I, you're far from boring. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I just I've just felt my, my, I feel like my my feelings and thoughts on this film are not coalescing, and in, in, you know, there's not a lot of cohesion here yet. I think it'll take a few more days for it to fully. Fully form. I know I like the film. Um, I do kind of have mixed feelings about the uh, lack of serialization of this franchise. And what I mean by that is that this film is really quite – you don't have to see the first film in order to enjoy this film. There's not as much connection as I felt like I would have liked. And, and in some ways, that's good, right? That's why I have mixed feelings about it because I liked this film – went and did the things that it felt like it needed to do um, to make it a good film. At the same time, I felt like it, I would have liked to have been a little more rewarded as a viewer of the first film. I don't know. How do you feel about that? You know, I actually did feel very rewarded as a, a viewer of the first film because I felt like they really kind of took a things that took things that were subtler, smaller parts of the first movie and uh, really allowed those to develop into something very important here. And though this is definitely a movie that you could – see and understand just fine without seeing the first film, I think you would lose a lot of appreciation for, uh, I think one of the biggest things is Koba. 
and sort sure. of seeing that his story and what he goes through in the first film informs so much of who he is and how he behaves in this movie. I mean, there's so much history there that really enriches that character. And it really helps you understand, you know, what a tragic character he is. And you might not get that if you were just coming to this movie without seeing the first movie. Also, you know, some of the smaller characters like uh, Maurice is another character who kind of comes over from the first film and gets a more expanded uh, Yeah, although I didn't here. feel like I got enough Maurice. But, uh, yeah, I do agree. Uh, seeing seeing Maurice again was was great, um, and I really enjoyed the camaraderie that was hinted at between uh, between Caesar and Maurice. And, you know, um, he, uh, uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that the whole thing with Koba, I, I guess if you didn't know Koba from the first film, you might just really, really, really hate him instead of just mildly, <laughs> mildly hating him. Right. Uh, and I mean, I think you're supposed to hate him, but at least you understand him to some extent. Uh, right. In, you in understand what's made him this way. I suppose right. it's not supposed to make you feel like he did the right thing or, or justified in doing the things that he did. Um, but but I, I, I don't know. I just feel like in general, I, I, like like the only, the, you know, the apes are the only characters that can carry over from the first film and as much as i like you know caesar as a character he's a wonderful character i i i wondered why we couldn't have james franco in this film i guess maybe well, he was too expensive or maybe too no. many people hate james franco because i i don't i'm not one of the i know he has haters i'm not one of them i think he's mm-hmm. a fine actor but you know i think not having james franco in this movie actually makes a huge impact because you know 99.8 percent of the human population according to this movie has died. Right. Uh, so, you know, the odds would be that most of the characters that we met in the first movie would be dead by the time this one comes around. And, you know, exceptions aren't necessarily made for protagonists. Um, true. And that's that's true, because that, that is an ongoing concern with most movies is your protagonist can't, you know, die or whatever. Right. And, and I think that uh, this movie also pays it off in an exceptional way, uh, you know, without getting too much into spoiler territory. I think the scene where Caesar uh, sort of encounters some old memories of uh, James Franco's character is one of the most extraordinarily powerful dramatic scenes in the movie. Uh, And that's another thing that I think really builds on having seen the first film and knowing what that relationship was and what it meant to Caesar uh, is another thing that adds a lot of power to that moment. So I thought it was, it was a very effective choice and I don't know whether it was, you know, something where James Franco didn't want to come back or they didn't want him to come back or what it was. But I do think that it was a strong storytelling move as a whole, and I think an important one, too, because, uh, you know, this series is called Planet of the Apes. The humans are of secondary concern here. True. And I think that's that's always been true, even, you know, going back to to the original film with Charlton Heston. If you look at the way that franchise developed, he was ultimately phased out pretty quickly, too, in the in the second film. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite unfamiliar with those original Planet of the Apes films. They're, they're, the first one is worth seeing. A lot of the sequels are kind of clunky. But. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. And, and and so what did you think, you know, speaking of the prequel or the, the previous uh, Planet of the Apes, these are, mm. these are standalone, but what did you think of the Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes? Uh, I thought it was awful. Just awful. Yeah, I, I completely agree. <laughs> in fact, um, it's interesting. I'd wanted to see uh, pl- that version of the Planet of the Apes for a little while. And um, so uh, not long after uh, Rachel and I were married, actually, we went and rented it, and 
it was awful. We we both just hated it. We we wanted that two hours of our lives back. And and I remember the reason I wanted to see it. I was you know obviously much younger at the time. And I remember seeing uh, previews for it in Walmart of all places and thought, mm-hmm. oh, it's, it's and they showed the scene where he's launching the spaceship and going back in time. I thought this is gonna, this this looks like a great sci-fi epic kind of thing. As it yeah. turns out, they just showed the best part of the movie, and then there was no more <laughs> sci-fi. It was all you know apes, you know, jumping around and doing stupid stuff and. Ugh, it's terrible. I, I will admit that I uh, sort of groaned inwardly the other day when I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and he was telling me, he was saying, yeah, he said, I haven't seen the new Apes movies, but I'm worried about them uh, sort of meeting the the standard of the original. And I was like, well, you know, the original was a really good movie. Uh, Charlton Heston, you know, was a great performance and a good story and everything. <laughs> oh, and, no. And he, go, he goes, oh, there was one with Charlton Heston? He said, no, I was talking about the Mark Wahlberg one. Ooh. He said, that movie is so good. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> So I just left it alone. I was like, like, I can't even. We we can't be friends anymore. No, (laughs) no forgiveness for him. Yeah, that's 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 a little nuts. Um, You know, Wahlberg is a fine actor and everything, but he could not bring that movie out of the depths. Uh, I mean, I I like Mark Wahlberg in the in the right role, but uh, he's he's definitely an actor who isn't necessarily too discriminating about the movies he signs up for, as evidenced by Transformers Four. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think he just tends to like any any movie that he feels he can be kind of a, a you know testosterone fueled character in. Right, and sometimes it works, and sometimes not. Right, right. So now, um, tell me a little bit about Matt Reeves. I've never seen any of his films before. I I, I didn't even realize he did Cloverfield until I was looking him up tonight. Um, mm-hmm. Is that is that his biggest film to date before this? I, I guess it's probably his, the more well known of his other two movies. Uh, Cloverfield is probably. One of the most prominent examples of the found footage genre. Mm. Uh, it's a movie I have mixed feelings on because, mm-hmm. like most of those movies, it it doesn't really justify the found footage gimmick uh, because it's following a group of uh, sort of college kids as they're being uh, as they're trying to deal with a giant monster sort of storming through the city, Godzilla style. Yeah. And at a certain point, yeah. you're like, they're not going to keep filming this forever. They would drop the camera and just run. Right. Uh, but yeah. they keep making their little documentary or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. That that sort of bugged me. But there are some good moments in the movie. Let Me In I liked a lot more. Uh, it's a remake of a Swedish horror film called Let the Right One In. Um, and it, it's it's really one of the rare horror films that's more about character and story than it is about just basic scares it's it's really sort of thought-provoking and moving and almost more of a drama with sort of some horror elements than a traditional horror movie uh very worthwhile and underrated film well well given you know the nature of cloverfield i you know and even in especially not having known of i've not seen cloverfield and not realizing that matt reeves directed cloverfield and then you know see so i went into this film thinking oh this is a relatively unknown director this should be interesting and i was kind of blown away of how good the movie was from a relatively unknown well it turned out it turns out he did cloverfield which makes him less relatively unknown but still quite a different thing from what we saw here well and you know he's he's uh one of J.J. Abrams' sort of acolytes. Sure. And uh, honestly, based on Let Me In and this film, I think I'm prepared to go ahead and say that I think he's a better director than J.J. Abrams. Oh, is. absolutely. I was about to say, um, if, if, if this is any indication, he's way higher caliber than J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams yeah. can do fine work, but not like – I don't think J.J. Abrams could make this film. No. 
I really um, don't. I, I don't think it's there's not enough, not enough lens flares for one thing, <laughs> but it's just not flashy enough. It's not. Uh, it, it has too much substance for J.J. Abrams. Frankly. Well, and, and it has too many moments of sort of quiet contemplation. Yes, J.J. Uh, Abrams has to keep everything busy all the time. Yes, so. ab- absolutely, and and that is one of the one of the things that gives me pause for his upcoming Star Wars film. But yeah, because uh, you know one of one of my you know the best film in the Star Wars franchise, for instance. Uh, uh, the the episode five, um, the Empire yes. Strikes Back. Um, it it certainly takes its time and reflects sometimes, and and I just don't know if JJ can pull that off. I just don't think he even knows what that means to him. That's boring. Yeah, I, I'm pretty concerned about it, but um, I'm also uh, optimistic though. We may have talked about this on the show before, but uh, Ryan Johnson taking over for episodes eight and nine. I think he's a terrific director. Yeah, that's so that's a good sign. That's a really that excites good sign. me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, Matt Reeves. Uh, I definitely agree. You know, uh, he, he, if this is any indication, he's a far better director than J.J. Abrams. So I, I'm, I'm anxious and, and excited to see what he's going to do with the uh, the next Planet of the Apes, which has already been announced for 2016. Yes. So that that's uh, that's very exciting. Um, so yeah, I was I was uh, was very gl- uh, let's say almost blown away by just how well he took this this franchise that you could easily let be such a silly silly thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 where even the previous film barely in some places stayed away from it just becoming the silly ape movie, um, and and he took that and and really I think elevated the the premise into a place that it really maybe doesn't even have a right to be. Um, I, I was I was very impressed with his directorial effort here. Yeah, I, w- I was too. I mean, there there's some extraordinarily powerful dramatic stuff here, and you wouldn't expect you know a, a Planet of the Apes movie, especially if you've seen some of the earlier ones, to be so emotionally involving and moving, and even thought provoking with some of the sort of subject matter it brings up. Yes, yes, uh, it was it was very emotional, and in, in, in a couple of places there, you know, I was I was wondering if anybody would notice if I pulled my my hanky out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it it really is something, and. Uh, you know, for a summer blockbuster to have this much soulfulness is always uh, just an extraordinarily pleasant surprise when it happens. Yeah, I feel like if if this trend continues, maybe next summer if we still see a lot of good summer blockbusters, we can finally call an end on the terrible summer blockbuster trend. Um, because I feel like that was kind of the same way last year. There were a couple of good movies uh, that that you know, and the same thing this year. There's been a couple of great summer you know quote quote, quote unquote summer blockbusters. Um, so yeah, I'm, and this is certainly one of the better ones. It's not my favorite so far this year, but it's, it's, it's way up there. So I think, yeah, this one probably is my favorite, uh, so far this year The the, uh, X-Men movie would come a close second, I guess, as far as the big summer blockbusters go. And I'm just, uh, you just invert those and and I'm right there with you. Okay. I got you. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, so as far as my likes for this film, uh, I, you know, it's it's a small thing. It's it's the little things, but it's stuff like this that I don't know if J.J. Abrams understands. It, the opening sequence after the prologue, because because I feel like that the first bit of the movie was the prologue, right, where you kind of got the the panning over the uh, the planet and showing the news footage and and what happened in the ten elapsed years, and then the movie really opens after the prologue on Caesar's eyes, and you kind of pull out, and then at the end of the movie. It's zooming back into Caesar's eyes. I love that sort of bookend thing. I mean, it's just yeah. it's a small little thing, but I really love that. That's it's, it's a it's a great touch, and yes. also you know on a more superficial level, um, a, a tremendous showcase for just what a stunning job the visual effects people have done uh, with the animation here. I think the rise of Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes are two of the strongest examples of uh, how remarkable. Uh, this motion capture animation technique can be when it's done correctly. Yeah, I'm trying to find the information. Uh, did Weta Weta Digital do this one? 
Uh, I do not know off the top of my head. Yeah, recently the company has developed their motion capture technique to be able to leave the studio for shooting on location as utilized in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So yes, it looks okay. like they did. Yeah. Yep, here it is. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet. So yeah, this is what a digital... And they do fantastic work. They do. And, uh, you, you know, really... It could even be argued that the the ape characters have even more sort of emotion in their faces than most of the human characters do. Yes, yeah, for sure. And and, and some of that maybe I think we're still refining. Obviously, we're still refining the CGI. But like I think for so long, you've almost had to overcompensate in in any sort of animation, whether it be digital, whether it be you know drawing or Disney animated, whatever. You kind of have to overcompensate to make sure that those emotions are coming through. And I think we're starting to get to the point where it's so real that they might need to back that down. And this, this was, I think, was riding that edge, but it was really good. Yeah, it was, it was always very subtle. And, you know, a lot of that's too, you know, the performers, Andy Serkis and Toby Kebbell and some of these other folks deserve a tremendous amount of credit, too, for bringing a lot of that to the table. And it's always difficult in this sort of thing to tell, you know, where the animation begins and where the performance ends. Uh, but really remarkable work from everybody involved. Yeah, and 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 to, from what I understand, there was a blending of Andy Serkis's actual, you know, like his eyes and things with the CGI of the character, or at least in a lot of modeling was done on his face as well. Yeah, uh, and then in addition with his motion capture performance, I mean, obviously the the technology is really advanced in in some of those ways. But I, I'll be honest with you. Uh, if I was just your average, you know, I didn't know for sure whether this movie was CGI or whatever, I would have to question, like, that That looked very real to me. It was, it's, it, we've come to the point, and, and I, I remember realizing this last year when, do you remember that commercial with, um, uh, Aud, uh, Audrey Hepburn? Yeah, Audrey Hepburn, uh, basically was recreated digitally. And you could tell that she was CGI, but just barely, and I don't even know if your average person who's not a, studying these things like we do, I don't know if they could have told that, it, that yeah. she was CGI. Did you, did you see that commercial? I did. I did. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it did look fairly persuasive. And, you know, uh, with this movie, one of my little brothers saw the trailer for it on TV, and he was sort of looking at me, and he was like, how did they get those monkeys to ride those horses? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't want to spoil the magic for him there and be like, well, with computers. but <laughs> And see, what I don't know, and, it, and, it, and you know, it's a testament to how good it is that I'm questioning this. Were those horses real and they had, you know, people riding them and then they were replaced digitally? Or were those CGI horses? I really don't know. That's I how believe, seamless this movie is. I'm like 98% sure that I read somewhere uh, that everything was CGI as far as the animals go. Because and 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 then frankly, that is such a testament to how far that this technology has come. I mean, think think about the Lord of the Rings and how how much we were praising it back in two thousand two. And mm-hmm. you go back now, and sure, the movies are wonderful. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. it, it's just not the same. The, the the CGI is just not there the way it is now. Now, and and I wonder too, like how much of this we will, you know, if we look back at this movie in in uh, how was two thousand two, so 14, twelve years. If we look back at this movie in twelve years, will we say, wow, look how far CGI has come now? But it's to the point where I can't tell. Yeah, uh, th- this movie certainly comes a lot closer to that than uh, e- even like Life of Pi, a movie that a lot of people were praising for its realistic CGI. You could still tell, you know, that the animals in that movie were CGI. Right. Um, but this one I thought took it even further, and, and some of it is really, really persuasive. I mean, Maurice in particular. Yes. It, uh, there, there is nothing in that movie that indicated to me that he was an animated character. Yeah. 
So we've been talking a lot about the uh, technical aspect of this, but uh, we, we have alluded to it. We've mentioned it. Uh, this film is more than just a technical masterpiece. Um, yes. it, it's a really wonderful um, story masterpiece. I mean, there, sure, there, and, and, and I'll get to this when I get to my dislikes. There are some very predictable elements just because we know where Planet of the Apes has to go. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there were some surprising elements as well. I don't know that I expected them to go exactly where they did with Koba. No, I, I didn't either. And, uh, you know, I really was, without spoiling the movie, I really was worried that they'd taken things in a further direction than they ultimately had. Uh, with right. that. Yes. But uh yeah, that was genuinely surprising and the movie doesn't doesn't hold any punches, you know, it, it, at the end of the movie, you know, and again without spoiling anything, the ultimate sort of conclusion the movie comes to is an extraordinarily sad one. Yes. But also one that it, it's very bold for a summer blockbuster, I think, to come to a conclusion like that which feels like the honest conclusion as opposed to just kind of throwing a lot of bombast and a happy ending onto the the climax. Yeah, I, and frankly, I think it's a great commentary on racism. And this is where I might get into a little bit of trouble. But <laughs> I, I, I like to think of myself as far beyond the idea of racism. Um, I, I've had many friends over the years of many different races. If you, I don't even like the term race because we're all one race. We're humans. Um, but I've, I've had many different friends of many different colors, of many different uh, builds, skin tones, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So I like to think of myself as beyond that. But um, I, I will also have to say that I have known many racists in my time, and many of those racists were of varying different colors. Many have been white, no doubt. Many have also been in the minorities that were racist. And I thought that this this film had a wonderful commentary on that, because obviously the apes are kind of the minority, you might say, although I don't know, because you could you could say, well, now the humans are the minority, whatever. But But obviously – the representation, at least to me, was that the apes are the minority; they're the lower class trying to work their way up. And, and you know, and, th- and Caesar uh, has this wonderful commentary on, "Well, I was blinded by the fact that he was an ape, and so I just trusted him." Yeah, and, and you know, that's an element that um, goes back to the original Charlton Heston film, some too. That movie, uh, even even more so than this one, uh, was a very prominent sort of racism parable, and uh, you know, made in the midst of the civil rights era. Right. Where you couldn't necessarily just come out and make a movie about racism, but if you, you know, do a little bit of tweaking and say, okay, what if we're talking about humans and apes? Then can you sort of see where we're coming from? With right, right. Uh, and did some of the sort of things that, you know, those old Star Trek episodes used to do with stuff like that. Yeah. Fun. When was the first uh, uh, Planet of the Apes movie made? I believe 68. I'll have to double check my facts, but I think that's right. Hey, I don't remember what year it aired exactly, but Star Trek came on in what, 1967? And then I don't remember if it was the first one. Yeah, it was second. like 66 to 68 or 69, something like that. Yeah, and I don't remember if it was what, what season this happened in, but the very first interracial, quote unquote, uh, kiss between a black woman and a white man happened on Star Trek between Kirk and Uhura. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that show definitely sort of uh, w- was pushing some boundaries at the time, and was pretty groundbreaking. In right, and 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 this, you know, when you go back and watch Star Trek now, it's very obvious that that Ahura it was not given a lot to do because audiences could barely tolerate, you know, the idea of a black woman on the bridge of the Enterprise, and so that was like ground, like wow, a black a white man kissed a black woman. I mean, you yeah. know, so that that so when you talk about. Um, uh, the original Planet of the Apes and racism, this is the time in which this is happening. And, you know, I don't want to venture too far off topic here, but it's worth mentioning since you brought up the Uhura thing. Uh, she was, a, or I don't know if you've heard this, but she was at one point thinking about quitting the show 
because uh, her character didn't have enough to do. Yes, yeah. And and, yeah. and Martin Luther King Jr. basically persuaded her to stay on the show because he felt it was, you know, of cultural importance for her to be on there and for people to see, you know, a, a black female in a position of authority on a spaceship uh, to sort of change people's minds about what was acceptable in society. Right, even if all she ever said was, hailing frequencies open. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah. so, so that's, that's kind of the time period and, and the, uh, the motivation, I, I think, even behind, like you said, behind the original Planet of the Apes. So this movie, in that way, I think stays true to the original vision of the Planet of the Apes. And, and obviously, racism has taken on an entirely different flavor and tone in our current generation, but, but it is still very much present, and, and it's, it's uh, good to have, I think, this commentary on racism. And well, racism is not just something that's – you know, obviously, I think white people – I can speak as a, as a white male of, of, in, a, in a majority in this country. I think we do have a problem with racism. A lot of us do. And as, but you know, I think that it can go two ways. Well, and you know, on, on a different level too, I think this movie has some commentary just on human nature in general, uh, and especially in the notion that basically the apes have become the way they've become because of humans. You know, you look at Koba's story, True, and yeah. he is the way he is because of human nature and what humans did to him. Yeah, and basically, uh, you know, one of the big sort of realizations that Caesar makes in this movie is that you know we've become like humans uh and you know it's in some ways kind of a sharp criticism of of just human nature as a whole and our our tendencies to sort of destroy so many things that we encounter yes i i completely agree and and that uh you know you you know from my perspective speaks to the depravity of man of course but you know it is very uh like you mentioned earlier it's a kind of a very sad ending of uh, that you're kind of left with and and part of that gets into you know and this is where i'm I'm crossing streams a little bit it's not quite so clean cut here's my likes and here's my dislikes because I did feel a little bit like this film was inevitably driving to that conclusion like i knew that this this particular film was not going to end well because i knew where planet of the apes had to go it is the planet of the apes so obviously we can't just have a happy ending where where the humans and the apes just get along yeah Uh, i mean there's a definite sort of end point here that you have to get to and in that way it almost plays a little bit like like greek tragedy where you know the fate is inevitable um but it but it works you know because i think there are so many elements that are so strong here that uh it almost doesn't matter that you know where it's going it does take away the element of surprise to a certain extent but it's still so powerful and so well directed and well performed that uh you know the the predictability of the plot doesn't really become a huge issue no it's not a huge burden it's just a minor one um there's a couple other things that i had that i i really liked and and then i can if you have any more we'll talk about those and then we'll get sure. to our dislikes but um I, I really loved that scene with uh the baby ape um caesar's caesar's kiddo mm-hmm. uh and where he kind of uh jumps up you know escapes and, and runs over the humans and you know uh i thought you know continuing the 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 talk of that we're having about racism i mean i think that speaks wonderfully to the kids don't see these the colors i when i was a kid i you know, uh, there was actually. I remember. Um, I remember now. I, at the time, it wasn't a big deal to me. But there was there was a black kid among my friends in our neighborhood, and t- to me, I didn't care. It didn't matter. And and you see that same sort of thing. I think in this scene where that you know that little uh, little ape didn't care. You right, know? and I mean it's it's obviously something that's that's taught and that's learned. It's not something you're born with. Right. And uh, yeah, that that is just sort of a strong reflection of that notion. 
Yeah, and and I and the scene was was wonderfully done, and and uh, you know especially you you knew at some point the uh, the fringe actor what was his name um, Kirk Acevedo yes Kirk Acevedo you knew he was going to do something stupid but even so it still kind of came as a surprise in that film or at that point in the film uh, mm-hmm. so uh, and then and then just generally largely overall kind of this the film uh, really had I think a good commentary again th- th- and this what made this film so good is the commentaries it had but th- the nature of war. Um, or Caesar was doing all he could to avoid it. And Koba, you know, was rushing headlong into it. And, uh, I I think most of the apes were completely unprepared for the nature of war. They didn't make them out like to be such brutes like they did in the Mark Wahlberg, uh, version of the planet of the apes where, you know, they just sort of, you know, were brutes. And, and in this film, you know, they were, I think, taken aback by, by what war actually was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they drew sort of a direct parallel, too, between the apes and the humans. And you see that there are some humans who really want to do everything within their power to preserve the peace. There are some apes who feel the same way. And then there are a lot of just sort of more irrational, violent-minded people lurking in the background who are determined to do whatever it takes to engage in a conflict. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they drew not only direct lines between the two sides as a whole, but between specific characters. I think you saw... Uh, you know, a, a direct line between the Jason Clark character and between Caesar, and then also between the Kirk Acevedo character and between Koba, and then later between the Gary Oldman character and Koba. Yes, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it was good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what else? What What do you have that you'd like to talk about before we talk about anything we didn't like? Uh, well, there were a number of things I liked about the movie. Uh, just on a technical level, I really admired Michael Giacchino's score. Uh, I thought it was a very fine achievement. There were some people I talked to who felt it was a little too reminiscent of his music for Lost at times. I, I suppose um, I wouldn't be able to make that comparison because I, I couldn't get through that Lost. I, I, I made it through like episode 11 or 12 of the first season or maybe a little further and I just couldn't stand it. Ugh, so boring. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I, I can't really fault you for that because I did like Lost for a good portion of its run, but it sort of fell apart at the end. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, I, I really did like that the film, too, took its time to really kind of consider the issues that it was exploring and didn't fall prey to the trap of just turning the third act into just kind of a mindless action extravaganza. Uh, all yeah. the action that was here had purpose and meaning and uh, dramatic story elements at their core. It wasn't just, you know, a lot of chaos done to sell tickets. Yeah, and, and, and there was one always, point at which I was I was about to say, oh man, they're they're just going to turn the third act into an, an action extravaganza, but but they they got away from it. There, I think they maybe just went a little too far, or I should say they I should say our director uh, Matt Reeves went just a little too far with the action, and I to the point where I felt like, oh, the third the third act is about to dissolve, but then it's kind of snapped out of it. Yeah, and you know, for the most part, in most of the sort of action scenes, he keeps the stakes. Uh, fairly intimate. He keeps the focus on the central characters and and what this particular battle that they're going through is doing to them. Right. I mean, you look at the opening scene, and it's this great big sort of, you know, action hunting scene and everything, but what it's really about is Caesar and his son and Koba and, uh, you know, is sort of setting up their relationship. And then later, you've got that great big battle scene towards the end of the movie, but that also, again, uh, is about the conflict between Caesar and Koba. 
and uh, he, he keeps these stakes very intimate and his focus very specific. And I think that goes a long way towards helping some of these more large-scale scenes and not letting the kind of scope carry things away. Right. It's it's a completely different approach to someone like Michael Bay would take, um, where to, in order to make things more epic, you have to make them as big as they can possibly be. Right. It's just, just and, huge chaos. Right. And it's really just the opposite. When you make the stakes understandable or relievable or more intimate, as, as you mentioned, it, the, the movie actually becomes more epic. I think it becomes more um, it actually increases the scale of the movie. And, you know, it's a film, too, where it's the rare summer blockbuster where many of its best moments are are very quiet moments. Um, I I mentioned the scene where Caesar is kind of looking back at uh, footage of James Franco's character from the first movie and Mm -hmm. also some of the quiet conversations that uh, he shares and the scene of Maurice and the kid reading a book together. Uh, you know, just yeah, these little yeah, yeah. moments that are that are just so powerful and so subtle. Uh, you know, I, I, I liked a lot of things. And it's worth mentioning, too, Koba, um, we haven't talked about a lot just as a character, but he's a fantastic villain. I mean, he's got so much complexity, and it's such a great performance from Tony uh, Toby Kebbell and the animators. You know, he's more than just uh, your typical angry bad guy. I, I was thinking about him as I was watching uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2 the other day, which has such a kind of bland, disappointing villain in it. Yes, yes. And uh, Koba, you know, in some ways is a similar sort of character externally, but he has so much more complexity and motivation, and you understand why he's doing what he's doing. And even if you don't empathize with him, you really sort of completely understand him. And, right, uh, yeah. It, it's just such a great creation. And it's like you said, it is the one one of the places where the film really does reward you if you've seen the first one. Because you, you, you met Koba before and you know some of the awful things that he's been through. You, you right. know, you know why he's doing it. And and you hope that if you were in some similar situation as a human that you wouldn't want to do that. But you know that we, we've seen it before. We know that humans do terrible things just like Koba was doing. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, I, I couldn't even help but think <laughs> on uh, kind of a surface level too. I kept being reminded of the relationship between Scar and Mufasa and the Lion King, <laughs> um, watching Koba and Caesar. A, a sort of grittier take on that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's that's probably an apt uh, comparison. And of course, that movie was um, loosely based on William Shakespeare's I was Hamlet. Say, it's I basically Hamlet. Right, and so uh, I think there's definitely some sort of Shakespearean elements sort of floating around in Planet of the Apes, too. Yeah. And it's the sort of movie that earns that comparison. I mean, it really is going for that level of drama. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do have, uh, do have some things that make this movie a little less than perfect, unfortunately. And, and the primary thing is I feel like the, the MacGuffin is a little bit outlandish. Um, like, they're just going to go and they're going to... Um, take some uh, magic and make the damn power work, you know? I mean, like, that that team is really small, and that thing's been sitting there for 10 years doing nothing, and you're, you're telling me in a couple of days you can get that thing producing power again? I mean, come on. I, I don't buy that, not for a second. Yeah, that is a little bit of a stretch, and I think uh, it's one of the moments where you see that the movie was really sort of created more as a parable uh, than anything else, yeah. and there, there are some sort of more realistic elements they didn't consider carefully enough. Yeah, um, I mean, like, like the the fact that sure, even if you do get it going, it's a man made machine that will eventually require maintenance. It's going to stop working at some point. And if I can sort of kind of veer into spoiler territory a little bit sure, here, go ahead. without giving everything away, um, the the ultimate action that Gary Oldman takes in his final scene in the movie seems extraordinarily undercooked to me. 
Right. Like, <laughs> what know, was I, the what was the next step after that? Right. I, I was like, what what was your point exactly? Was it really worth what you just did to accomplish what you accomplished? It's like uh, it's, it's it, like he was it, the ape beating his fists on his chest. <laughs> Me blow him up some apes. <laughs> right. It was it, it was such a disappointment, especially because that character at least in his early scenes, had seemed fairly intriguing and promising. Right, and that is actually, uh, it was a bullet point I was going to make further down, but it, there's no real particular order, so I'll just say it. The the Gary Oldman character, uh, Dreyfus, he really felt uh, like they teased that he was going to be something, and then he never really was. Like, he was very underutilized and not really flushed out, which is just such a waste, because Oldman, you know, is such a fantastic actor, even here, where he's not, like, his character didn't pay off. He's such a fantastic actor. Like, wh- yeah. what happened to that character? I feel like there was more written for him to do that got cut. Yeah, I, I felt that way, too. And, you know, you have that um, that strong early scene where he's basically trying to kind of subdue the crowd and keep everybody calm while knowing in the back of his mind that things really are bad. Yeah. And, and you see sort of a complex leader there. And I was thinking, okay, this guy really has something to him. And I can see the kind of the kind of light tension that's building between his character and Jason Clark's character and their sort of opposing philosophies. But yeah, like you say, it just, it never paid off. They kind of set it up and then let it go. Yeah. And then, um, let's see the, the communication between the apes didn't always make a lot of sense. I mean, I, I, I know a little bit of sign language and there certainly was some in there, but it felt like they were having conversations much more complex on, in the words that were being put to us than what they were actually signing um, I, I felt like that was a little bit of a, a cop out. It it might be, but at the same time, you know, uh, especially when languages are first developing, they can evolve uh, to a pretty dramatic degree and yeah. incorporate, you know, entirely new elements. If you look at the way sort of over the history of time that language has spread to different countries and different permutations sure. it has taken, uh, you know, that, that's something that never really bothered me all that much. Uh, it is intriguing, though. Um just how much is left of that uh, James Franco character sort of resonating in the world of the apes. That's true. With him having taught Caesar so much of that and Caesar having brought that to so many of the other apes and it sort of becoming, you know, uh, their primary method of communication, at least in the early portion of the movie. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, conceptually, I completely agree. I just felt like the execution of it was like, I, I don't I don't know. Some of this, they're like having these conversations that, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just not much of a sign language guru and maybe, you know, somebody who... Uh, you know, actually, I've 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 known some some deaf friends too. Um, yeah. Many 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 years ago, but maybe one of them could, you know, could could have something to say about it. But it just didn't feel to me like I was seeing conversations actually take place. That's so, fair. Yeah. That that was you know I know it's kind of a minor thing and it's irrelevant to the actual plot. We can just you know this is all make believe anyway. We just make believe they're having real conversations, but it was just a little weird. Um. So uh, I've already actually mentioned this one. Um, I'll just I'll just mention it again. We uh, you know just because this is the actual section where I'm supposed to mention it. We we kind of always knew where the Planet of the Apes had to go, and that made the film um, a little predictable in in some ways. Like we knew that that the the apes were going to have to go to war with the humans, and we knew that they were not going to resolve that, and we knew that they were not going to live peace, peacefully. Uh, we just kind of knew all this was coming, so that that would be my, I think, my secondary disappointment with the film. My primary one was the MacGuffin, and this would be the secondary. Uh, I'm gonna at least defend that to a, a, a small degree. I, I think the film did get some additional dramatic power out of that, though, because you know, you just know that later in the movie, that war is going to bring out, that things are going to dissolve into chaos, that. Uh, apes and humans are not going to get along, that things are just going to go terribly. We know this much. But the movie does such an effective job 
in its first hour uh, of, of showing you what a beautiful thing, um, you know, peace and diplomacy can be and what beautiful relationships are being formed between some of these humans and apes and how strong and powerful some of those connections are that you really begin to kind of dread that big action stuff coming and That's things true. falling apart. I mean, it, it really sorts, starts to gnaw at you a little bit. And, and I think there's uh, that that's a viable way of generating drama, of you know using the audience's knowledge to sort of enhance uh, the strength of what you're doing beforehand. Yeah, I, I don't completely disagree. That, that that and that is a good valid point that I hadn't completely considered. I suppose, like I said, I'm having a hard time making my feelings completely coalesce on the film. Sure, um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean that is a good point, and and it's hard to get away from uh, what would you say stereotypes or 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 predictability yeah. sometimes because there are so only so many ways to to tell the story, and then at some point you know you you're, you're retelling the same stories over and over in different ways. I mean, look at look at the Lion King; it's basically Hamlet. Right. Um. So yeah, I mean that is a good point, and it does use that to good effect. So you're absolutely right about that. How you really do have a sense of dread because you know. You know what Koba's up to. You know what's going on, and yet you see these relationships forming. You see uh, what was Carrie Russell's character's name, uh, Ellie, doing everything that she could to, ha- you know, when when uh, when Caesar's uh, mate is about to uh, die and and she's yeah. deathly sick. You know, she she's doing everything she can to make it better and right. And just at that crux of that moment, when when everything has been made right, the apes and the humans are getting along swimmingly. And, and, you know, Caesar is happy, and then along comes Koba and ruins it all. So it does use that to great effect. You're absolutely right. And, you know, not, not on a storytelling level, but on an emotional level, uh, there was a part of me that really wanted the rest of that movie to just be uh, the apes and the humans really getting along and singing Kumbaya together and teaching each other <laughs> tricks and just having a grand old time. And I would have been like, great movie. <laughs> but obviously, uh, from a dramatic perspective, that's not much of a story. Yeah. My final complaint uh, is where in the world did the apes get all those guns from, Clark? Uh, from the humans. But when? 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 How? How did they, they did steal it. that many guns from the humans? When did they do that? They raided their uh, warehouse. When? I don't remember this. There was a scene in the movie where they went and basically uh, Koba and his two friends had been sort of doing some reconnaissance work. And right. they went and spied out the location and figured right. out where it was. And then a bunch of the, they, he sort of led a bunch of the apes there, and they went and stole the guns. I'm pretty sure I'm not. Uh, I, I'm fairly I, positive. I remember a scene in which they showed them sort of breaking in and stealing a bunch of guns from the like warehouse. I feel like you're inferring that. I don't remember. No, that no. I'm, I, I remember like a specific image of a bunch of apes opening those crates and taking the guns. Mm, okay. I might be going senile in my it's, not quite old age. It's but, possible. It's but possible. I'm pretty sure. I don't know if you like had to take a, a restroom break nope. at some point. No, nope. no, okay. that is that is illegal to do during movies. <laughs> um, but uh, that yeah, is this, out of bounds. <laughs> um, I don't know. Okay, yeah, I, I seem to remember this. I'm I'm fairly positive. Maybe well, they showed us different cuts. Maybe I don't know. They seem to be fairly adept with those guns too, though. Like I don't know. No, I don't that, know if you've ever I shot will a agree gun with or... you on. They 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 picked up. Uh, on how to use those pretty fast. I don't know if you've uh, that, ever that shot any like guns or not before, but the first time you shoot a gun, it's it's not like you got a good handle on how to do it. Yeah, it's not. Um, no, it's not a, a simple thing. Not yeah. not as much as it looks, at least. Yeah. So that yeah, that's it. Um, what else have you got, man? Uh, dislikes. Okay. Um, I despised the Kirk Acevedo character. I hated him so much. He was my least favorite part but of this movie. You were supposed to though. 
I know. Okay, uh, and I get that. There, there's absolutely a reason for a character with his motivations to exist in this movie. I, I respect that. But he was such a stupid character, and uh, past the point of believability for me, this character existed to say and do stupid things to cause conflict in the movie. True. And it was just so obnoxiously done. Like, uh, you know, the stuff when he sees very clear evidence that the apes are really smart and really organized and not to be messed with. And yet he's still, you know, continuing and insisting with this whole, they're just a bunch of stupid animals. They don't know anything. It's just a bunch of monkeys, you know, in this whole sort of business. Yeah. That really bugged me. Also, when Ellie, uh, when he's going on about, you know, how the apes killed off the humans with their disease and everything, and she's explained to him, well, the apes weren't responsible for this. We were doing all this testing, and we created this whole virus, and da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, he basically says, oh, shut up with your hippy-dippy nonsense and this, right. that, you know. Yes. Yes. I don't want to listen to your facts, you know, and this whole... Don't confuse I, I, me with the facts. <laughs> right. They need not apply. The, the, it was just too much uh, nonsense like that that really bothered me. And even in the scene... With the, uh, you know, little baby monkey, which is like the most adorable thing on earth. Yes. The little baby monkey playing with everybody. And even there, you know, he's like, oh, you're done playing with your stupid little monkey, you know, and this whole sort of thing. Right. I I don't know. He just seemed too aggressively obnoxious and dumb, uh, more so than the movie needed. And I, I didn't care for that. Also, I do wish, honestly, that his character and Gary Oldman's character had sort of been combined into one more well-drawn character yeah because i think they, they're supposed to share a lot of similar traits uh the gary oldman is a subtler version of uh that sort of character and i did like his take on it a little better mm-hmm. but but i do wish that uh, those two characters had been combined uh preferably with gary oldman playing the part so that gary oldman could have had you know a a, a meteor role and that character could have made a little more sense yeah yeah maybe so but yeah, I, I, I disliked that, and um, in general, I felt like the humans were just underdrawn. Even though I think Jason Clark and Carrie Russell and Gary Oldman are all good actors, I, I didn't really feel like any of them had a lot of substance to them. They were just sort of filling, you know, sort of necessary roles in the plot, but none of them were particularly memorable. I didn't yeah, feel. and of course, you realize that this film is actually getting a lot of praise for this aspect. Where I would tend to agree with you, like I wish there had been a little better balance. But a lot of a lot of critics are praising the film because it focused even more on the apes than it did on the humans, which is quite the bold act, for a bold choice for a live-action film. And, you know, I agree with that choice. I think it's the right choice because the apes are ultimately the central characters here. But I still think even with the amount of screen time that they're given, I think the humans could have been a little bit better drawn mm-hmm. and a little more compelling. But, yeah, uh, you know, the Acevedo character was the only one that I, like, actively had a big problem with. Yeah, I would say in thinking back about the characters, I, I felt like Jason Clark was was okay, and Carrie Russell I wish could have been developed a little more. The, o- the only other one that I really wish, besides, of course, Gary Oldman, which I already talked about, the only one I really wish could have been developed more would have been uh, Cody Smith-Fee's, McPhee's character, Alexander. Yeah, which, and he which, had some nice scenes, too, but he did. Just, just not a lot to do. Yeah, he, did, he, he really was in, inconsequential to the plot. Like, you could have cut him, and he would not. it would not have made a difference to the plot of the film. It's uh, worth mentioning, too, he's one of the leads and uh, well, really the main character in Let Me In and very, very good in that movie. Okay. All right. What else you got? Um, other dislikes? Uh, really, really not a lot. Um, the next one isn't coming out till 2016. That's correct. 
Uh, that's that's a dislike uh, that I have to wait two <laughs> years. So boo on that. Uh, but um, but yeah, uh, really, just some of the way the ways the humans were handled bugged me to various degrees. But pretty much, uh, whenever the apes were on screen and whenever they were focusing on them, uh, I had zero real substantial problems with the movie. I thought all of that was really well handled and uh, it was a very satisfying film overall. One of my favorites of the summer, probably my favorite blockbuster so far. Okay. I'm not far behind you. Um, so let's go ahead and get into our final ratings and, and thoughts. And uh, my, my rating of the film, uh, as far as I can tell, as my thoughts kind of congeal is a four out of five stars, just because of some of those issues that I mentioned, I, I wish could have been handled better. At the same time, I, I feel like it is a fantastic film, especially for a summer blockbuster. Bested only so far this year, as I, as far as I can recall, my my memory sometimes plays tricks on me. But I think the only thing I would I would have that bests it would be X Men: Days of Future Past right now. Okay. So, so I know that's a little bit of the inverse of what you're thinking, which is fine. I, I feel like your your opinion is perfectly valid, though the wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so, so uh, yeah, I, I, it's this is one of the ones we should support. Please go and yes. see it. <laughs> yes, and I, I mean it's 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 smart, thoughtful science fiction. Yes. Um, you know, this is the kind of movie we need to see more of uh, yes. during the summer movie months. So I, I agree. Hopefully, people will go out and support it, and it sounds like they are. But uh, anyway, I, I would give it a rating of four and a half stars out of five. Uh, there is a half star missing with Kirk Acevedo's face on it, and <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's not his fault really. He's a fine actor. Uh, it's, it's not his, it's the, it's the character. It's not the performance. Yeah. But, I mean, um, as far as him being a fine actor, I felt like he really always nailed it in fringe and, yeah. you know, especially in the later seasons where they, you know, those, those actors had to play two different characters and the subtleties, you, you know, obviously I, I feel like, uh, the actress that played Olivia Dunham really captured the subtleties between the two Olivia's, but, but I think he captured the, uh, quite kind of the, the subtleties between his two characters as well, which was, I did too. Yeah, good. I mean, it, it was a terrific performance on Fringe. Um, but yeah, the, the the little issues with the way some of the humans were handled aside, uh, I, I thought this was just a fantastic, thought-provoking, moving, exciting movie um, with a lot of valuable things to say. And uh, yeah, it's just about everything I wanted from this film. Excellent. Uh, we never did talk about it. I meant to talk about it. Um, what were your feelings on the first film? Oh, um, I really liked it. Uh, I thought the first film was maybe even more consistent across the board than this one was, but the high points of this one were even stronger than the highest points of the first film, if that makes sense. So for, so for comparison's sake, what would you have rated that, or what would you rate that first film? I'd probably, it, hmm, it's a tough call, either four or four and a half. I think I like this one a little bit better. Just okay. a little bit. But uh, the first one is a very good film uh, and a very good start to the series. But uh, this one, at least emotionally, feels like it's on an entirely different dramatic plane. Yeah, and, and I did like that first film. Uh, not not as much as this one, but I did like it well enough. I felt like it got a little silly in a couple of the – like it, it delved into mindless action a couple of times. With this one, it almost did, and then it pulled out and, and didn't. Um, yeah. it pulled out of the, what I felt like was going to be a nosedive and it, it recovered where rise of the planet of the apes. The first one I felt had just, it didn't quite recover from its nosedive. And I, I will say the first one too had sort of the, the element of surprise for me where I really wasn't expecting much from it. I had kind of groaned at the idea of rebooting planet of the apes, especially with James Franco, an actor I, I still don't like. Okay. Um, but, but that movie just sort of startled me with with how smart it was and with how uh, moving it was. And especially, I mean, Caesar 
really was the heart and soul of that movie, as he was the heart and soul of this one. Right, sure. And 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 seeing that character and that performance and that animation um, just kind of astonished me. Yeah. So uh, a very pleasant surprise the first I, time around. I was pleasantly surprised by it, too. I don't rate it as highly. It's three and a half out of five stars for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've been pleasantly surprised by this series. And obviously this one, four out of five stars, that's, that's fairly high praise for me, I, I feel like. Um, so yeah, I, after the Mark Wahlberg thing, I almost, in fact, I didn't see Rise of the Planet of the Apes until very recently, knowing that Dawn was coming out. Uh, and I was quite pleasantly surprised at, at how much better it was. Uh, and, and I stubbornly, I was avoiding it because I had heard that it was much better than the Mark Wahlberg, uh, torture. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, I think that's, uh, going to wrap it up for our thoughts on, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and the Planet of the Apes franchise in general. Very much looking forward to what's to come in this franchise. Yes, me too. Well, next week we're going to be talking about Snowpiercer, and hopefully we will be joined not only by Joe, who will hopefully have uh, found a way to get himself home off the side of the road. I'm sure he has by now, but uh, who will also be joined. uh, So it'll be me and you, Clark, and then Joe, and then hopefully uh, Fizz as well, uh, Mikey Fizzle, uh, will be joining us to talk about Snowpiercer. I'm still unclear whether I'm going to get to see this in theater or not, but I believe it's out on video on demand now, so I'll be able to see it one way or another. Well, so. uh, without giving away too many of my thoughts for next week's show, I'll just tell you that you're in for a treat. Good, good. I, I really – I'm looking forward to it. And then after that, we have A Most Wanted Man, which is one of the final films of uh, – uh, help me out here, Clark. Philip Seymour uh, Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman, yes, which is quite sad, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. Yes. Uh, look, looked uh, intriguing. Um, and then uh, I haven't talked to Fizz about this, but I, I know he'll want to talk. He'll probably want to see Hercules and talk about that because he's a big fan of uh, The Rock, so Dwayne mm. Johnson. So I have I am more skeptical of that film, but we'll be, that'll probably that will probably be after a Most Wanted Man. So uh, the, the words Brett Ratner kind of scare me a little <laughs> bit with that. One. Uh, yes, is he? I, I hadn't even paid attention. Is he directing? He, he is. He's the director. I'm sorry. I'm out. We, I'm taking this <laughs> off. I can't even do this. I am. I'm removing this from trail. Oh, we'll see. Uh, so anyway, that's that's kind of the upcoming schedule. Snowpiercer and then a most wanted man are already on the schedule for sure. Uh, so for the next two weeks, and uh, technically after a most wanted man, Chad is supposed to be back, and you are no longer contractually obligated. Uh, although you are always welcome on the show. so Well, I, I do appreciate it. Um, we've got our first kid coming up before too long oh, here, that's probably right. in that's late right. August. So that might uh, take up a bit of time. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's always fun to do the show. Well, congratulations on that in advance. So oh, if, thank you, sir. if people would like to uh, discover more of your work, uh, more of your fine work, you have a you have a podcast, uh, you write reviews and and all sorts of fun stuff. Where, where, where can they keep up with you at? Well, uh, I write for dvdverdict.com. They can check out a lot of my reviews and stuff over there, along with other reviews of some of the other fine writers who work for that website. And also, uh, the podcast that I do, The Sounds and Sights of Cinema, can be found there. Uh, if you happen to live in the Spalding County, Georgia area and want to read a review once every two months, I write for a local magazine <laughs> called Kitchen Drawer. Okay. Uh, so there's that. And then uh, psychics can find me by the usual method um but tune yeah. into tune into the brainwaves tune into the fre- uh, frequencies yeah yeah there you go uh if you'd like to you can follow me on twitter i am tj draper pro uh you can also uh, catch uh any of my writing and reviews uh on moviebyte.com uh, you can find the uh show notes for this episode at moviebyte.com if i can if i can get my words to come out of my mouth moviebyte.com/mbpodcast uh/97 is where you're going to find the show notes for this episode at 
Uh, and do stop by iTunes and give us a review and a rating if you are so inclined. That would help us out and keep us on the charts and help people to discover the show. Uh, with that, we're going to sign off and we're going to uh, see Snowpiercer by one means or another. And we're going to talk about it next week. Greatly looking forward to that. Clark, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, TJ. Uh, see you next week. Okay. Okay.